Okay. Thank you again, everyone, for joining us. My name is Jessica Brownfeld. I'm the Communications Manager for the Autism Science Foundation, and you are here for a webinar with Dr. Matthew Anderson. Just a couple of things before we start officially. Uh, every All the participants here are on mute, but there is a question section in the control panel of GoToWebinar where you can submit questions. You should feel free to type in your questions and send them over anytime throughout the webinar, and we'll be answering them at the end after Dr. Anderson's presentation. If you don't receive an answer to your question, um, you can feel free to email them to Dr. Alicia Halliday, the Chief Science Officer of the Autism Science Foundation. Her email address is on your screen right now. Unfortunately, she couldn't join us today. Uh, so like I said, type in your questions at any point, and we will do our best to get to as many of them as possible. And like I said, the recording will be available after the fact. It will be sent out to all attendees today. So a little bit more about Dr. Anderson. He is an associate professor and principal investigator in the departments of pathology and neurology and the director of neuropathology at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, an affiliate of Harvard Medical School. The Anderson Laboratory studies the molecular, cellular, and neural network mechanisms responsible for a number of disorders, including autism. Dr. Anderson has been working in the field of molecular biology for decades, first investigating the causes of cystic fibrosis. It has been this type of work that has enabled new therapies that target different gene mutations of people with cystic fibrosis, significantly improving their lives. He is now using his expertise to better understand epilepsy and autism spectrum disorder, developing and testing different genetic animal models. He focuses on how the cells in the brain are turned on, turned off, and where they go and how these brain cells function. In addition to this, he is a board-certified neuropathologist who is also the node director for the Boston node of the Autism Brain Net. Dr. Anderson gave an amazing talk at the National Association of Medical Examiners aimed at educating medical examiners about the need for brain tissue and autism and those who don't have autism to better understand symptoms and find more targeted treatments. The talk was so interesting that we thought it, we would have him do it again for the 99.99% of people out there not in attendance at that meeting. So thank you very much for Dr. to Dr. Anderson for joining us today. Um, we also have Carolyn Hare, who is the Clinical Director of Autism Brain Net with us as well. So I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Anderson without further ado. Okay, and Dr. Anderson, under the sharing section in the GoToWebinar control panel, you'll be able to select the slideshow option under showing to share your screen. Okay. Right, let me see how this looks. Um, how does that look? That looks great. Okay, great. Uh, well, thank you all for joining and uh, thank you particularly um, uh, for inviting me to give this uh, presentation. Uh, it's really exciting for me to share, um, you know, the mission of this program, Autism BrainNet, and also uh, a little taste of what we're doing in, in my laboratory towards autism as well. Uh, you know, but the main goal here is to really give you a sense for the importance of, of really studying uh, brain tissue to understand autism. 
Uh, and uh, just moving on to, let's see here, okay. Uh, for the goals of this talk, uh, first of all, discovering the neuropathology of autism. What, why is this important to us? What, what's the you know need here? And, and I'll illustrate that with a couple examples of other disorders where the neuropathology is really become the target of therapy that's in development, particularly for uh, dementing illnesses. Uh, I was going to talk a, about the origins and evolution of autism brain net, um, so, you know, so you understand the program and where it came from and where it's headed. Um, and then I was going to get into uh, just a, a summary of the, the disorder and the comorbidities, which I think are very important to consider. Uh, then I was going to touch on genetics of autism and how investigations of the genetics of autism are really critical to providing insight into really what brain regions we need to study in, in defining the neuropathology of the condition. And then finally, I'm going to really give you a uh, sort of a thumbprint view of uh, autism neuropathology as we know it so far. So why, why do we need a neuropathology of autism? Well, I think it's really well is illustrated when you think about Alzheimer's de dementia, which if you go back uh, maybe you know, 30 years um, was, was really kind of not on the map. And that's really, autism is even new, newer to the sort of the, to the map. Um, and really some of the important breakthroughs in Alzheimer's disease was looking at the tissue and discovering that there are these beta amyloid deposits um, that called neuritic plaques and also in the blood vessels you can see here. So this is a piece of brain tissue from a human that has Alzheimer's dementia. Uh, and then the other thing they found is in the neurons, this is a neuron here, pyramidal neuron, you can see these little filamentous structures inside of them and these are neurofibrillary tangles and this is composed of the protein tau. So the beta amyloid deposits and the tau deposits in neurons are really the main target of therapy to treat all, uh, Alzheimer's disease. All the major pharmaceutical companies are trying to develop antibodies to clear the beta amyloid plaques and also the processing of this substance and uh, they're using markers now to uh, that bind to beta amyloid to see it happening in vivo in, uh, in living patients. So um, and certainly tau tangles they think is also a major problem and they're aiming uh, therapies at these two things. So this is one example. Another example is Parkinson's disease uh, and a related Lewy body dementia. And in both conditions, there are these little inclusions in the neurons. This is a dopaminergic neuron you can see with the pigment in it in your brainstem. And you can see this little hollowed out area is a Lewy body, they call it. It's a little inclusion of the protein alpha-synuclein. And in the cortex, they, you know, they first discovered this, then they discovered, well, actually, they're in the cortex as well, and this could explain why they not only had the movement problems, but they also have dementia. Um, and this is probably the second most common of cause of uh, dementia, or maybe the third after vascular dementia, uh, following Alzheimer's disease. And you can see that they could stain uh, the beta, the alpha-synuclein protein. And you know the genetics is all coming around alpha-synuclein, and really the therapeutic development is all aimed at reducing this alpha-synuclein accumulation. Um, a more recent uh, addition to uh, the neuropathology world um, 
is this uh, finding of chron uh, in chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Um, and it's really a brain that's been traumatized. And they had a sense that there was such a thing um, from boxers. Box some boxers would develop dementia over time or Parkinson's disease as well. And uh, they, they sort of knew about that, but they didn't realize that it extended into other conditions like uh, athletes uh, playing football and other contact sports. Um, and certainly it's just really getting much more press now uh, and was sort of highlighted last Christmas uh, with this new movie called Concussion. And really what, what this, actually a medical examiner uh, uncovered was that the brain had uh, of these individuals that passed away uh, with pretty severe impairments uh, later in life had these tangles in their brain which um, are the tangles that I just showed you in Alzheimer's disease, the same little filamentous inclusions uh, in, in their neurons. And you can see these in the cross sections of the brain here, often in the depths of the sulci in the medial temporal lobe here. Uh, and some of these areas are thought to be prone to the trauma that would produce them. Uh, so here again, this puts it on the map. It makes it kind of a real entity instead of this, um, you know, uh, just, you know, <clears throat> ill-defined, uh, purely behavioral condition. Um, so what do we know about autism spectrum disorder from the neuropathology? And this is kind of a, a real brief summary of it. I'm going to get into more detail at the end. Um, but essentially, there is elevated neuroinflammation, and particularly um, there's an activation of microglia and macrophages, which you can see in a stained section of a brain with uh, autism where the microglia is labeled here in brown and you can see all their little tiny processes extending around the neurons in the cerebellum here <clears throat> and these are critically important in uh, synaptic pruning in um, clearing substances from the brain particularly if there's an infection or some toxic substance they'll be involved in removing that and then they also turn into these macrophages that phagocytose material and this is a bunch of them sitting around a blood vessel. So those are elevated, certainly, in, in the tissue uh, in autism. Uh, you know, the cause of these is still unclear, and that's something to be worked out. Um, so autism brain net really nucleated originally out of a program called Autism Tissue Program that um, was really started by the National Alliance for Autism Research uh, and Jane Pickett was one of the big champions of that program, and she, in fact, is now part of Autism Brain Net and has really helped, you know, move it into this new uh, period. Um, Autism Speaks sort of took over then to support that program, and then really um, with the um, insight of David Amaral at the Mine Institute in Sacramento, UC Davis, um, he decided to... Uh, really see if we could get a, bi a bigger program put together with the support of the Simons Foundation Autism Research Ini Initiative. And he had a meeting with uh, Jim Simons and Jerry Fishbach, um, who is sort of a uh, you know former uh, member of this community here in Boston, um, who's now a major scientific advisor at the Simons Foundation. And they had a meeting and essentially decided that this really is an important uh, next mission that to really understand autism. So they developed this thing called Autism Brain Net, uh, which has now incorporated this Autism Tissue Program's resources, originally stored at Harvard Brain Bank in McLean, 
uh, and it's been moved to uh, you know the, this node here uh, in in the Longwood area, right next to Harvard Medical School um, that that we distribute. Um, so uh, you know certainly I'll show you all the data that's been provided up till now, and a lot of it comes from the ATP tissue sources. Um, there's also been a wonderful collaboration with Autism Science Foundation, and you're seeing an example of that right now as I speak. Um, but also, uh, really, a wonderful outreach to developing kind of a recognized insignia that represents this effort, um, run by Allison Singer and Alicia Halliday. And now, the uh, program at Simon's Foundation is largely uh, supported um, uh, by Marta Benadetti, who is uh, a critical um, sort of leader, you know, for uh, the Simons Foundation effort in this direction. So the, the structure of Autism BrainNet uh, currently involves three nodes distributed across the United States, uh, with Sacramento being one site where Cindy Schumann is the director, um, and certainly that's where David Amaral is largely based um, as a director. There's also a node in Dallas, Texas, run by Carolyn Taminga. She's a uh, chair of psychiatry there who has a long history of research in psychiatry or in uh, schizophrenia uh, and a wonderful brain banking program there aimed at you know some of these psychiatric disorders. Well, now she's extending that expertise into autism, so it's wonderful to have her involved. Uh, Dr. Patrick Hoff is a expert neuroanatomist, uh, has done a lot of tremendous work actually even comparing brains across uh, primates uh, and, and the differences there. Um, and he's published a number of papers on some of the abnormalities found in autism. He's directing the tissue collection program at the Seaver Center uh, in New York. And then, um, as I mentioned earlier, um, I'm running the program in Boston, uh, where I am a neuropathologist and actually I serve as the neuropathologist uh, for the overall program of Autism Brain Knots. So any cases that are placed into this program, I provide a formal clinical neuropathology report on the case uh, to the medical examiners, the pathologists, and uh, your physicians. And then they often will share the, that information with, um, with the family. Um, so the other thing that was very important is that we partnered with uh, a very large program called NIH Neurobiobank, uh, which collects actually all, all neurologic and psychi psychiatric disorder tissue samples. Um, it's not uh, specific to any one condition, uh, but they've decided to partner with us, um, which extends the number of uh, node sites that are involved to many more spots, including Maryland, in Miami, for example, also I think there's one in LA. So any cases that come in uh, can actually potentially come in through NeuroBioBank as well as Autism BrainNet. Um, so Autism Spectrum Disorder, I think a lot of you know this. Um, sorry if I'm reviewing something that's too already familiar, but I'll just touch base for anyone who's not familiar. It's a very high, free, high incidence disorder. It's 1 in 68 uh, with recent estimates at the CDC. More frequent in males and females, we don't quite understand why that is, uh, but it's an important thing to consider. Uh, the core diagnostic symptoms are reduced sociability <clears throat> and increased repetitive behavior and restrictive interests beginning at a very early age 
Uh, some people believe, uh, you know, two and even earlier, there might be some signs of, of these symptoms. Uh, important, some, something that not everybody thinks about that I want to highlight, but I think that many families appreciate, you know, these, these comorbidities, is um, uh, something that really is a major uh, struggle for families and often is the reason uh, medication is uh, prescribed. Uh, which is um, sometimes there's irritability, there can be self-injury, sometimes even, uh, you know, in, uh, breaking things uh, in forms of aggression. Um, the, the other thing that is a treatable uh, comorbidity, which is sort of in the realm of neurology, is epilepsy. Um, and uh, there are, unfortunately, some examples where that leads to premature death, and it's called sudden unexpected death in epilepsy. So the large effort in brain banking for SUDEP uh, overlaps uh, quite a, a bit with um, our efforts in autism. Uh, another variably present uh, comorbidity, uh, the severity varies as well, is the intellectual disability that can occur. Um, and, uh, you know, here again, it's a you know, a completely different condition. Um, and, you know, one reason we're quite interested in this is some of the genes that might be underlying these problems in, in you know, intelligence could even give us insight into the origins of human intelligence, which is quite unique among, um, you know, uh, related species. Uh, the other comorbidity is sleep disorders. Um, and you hear many cases of individuals whose children just don't sleep at night very much or they don't stay asleep. Um, and also it's important to think about the fact that sometimes the epilepsies more frequently arise in sleep. So this is an important thing to consider. Uh, there can also be other treatable psychiatric comorbidities um, that coexist as well. So you can see that there's many, many different behavioral realms um, uh, in neurologic disorder realms that uh, coexist. Um, and the general view is that these may all arise from somewhat different circuitries of the brain. Uh, each circuitry controls a different feature of behavior and, uh, you know, whether it's a genetic defect or a uh, immunologically based mechanism uh, in different cases, they're impacting different circuitries to produce each of these problems. Um, so this really just kind of highlights again the diversity of uh, conditions that, that can coexist in, in this very heterogeneous uh, disorder called autism spectrum disorder. <clears throat> so epilepsy specifically, there have been some recent major progress in studying postmortem tissue of sudden um, unexpected death in sorry, uh, SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome, um, where uh, they're beginning to find that there are uh, abnormalities in the hippocampal formation that actually resemble those that you find in seizures. So uh, Dr. Kinney, uh, a colleague of mine at Children's Hospital, who's also a neuropathologist, has whole, a whole series of papers showing abnormalities of the hippocampus. And I think that this is leading people to think that that might be a seizure disorder as well, where a, se a severe seizure um, may, may explain, uh, you know, the sudden uh, unexpected death. And uh, she's extending this into uh, toddlers as well, which begins to overlap with autism in age. Uh, and what she's finding is that there's a duplication of a structure called a dentate gyrus. I'll show you that in a minute. Many more in the control than the cohorts you can see, 100% versus 8. 
and in the slightly older individuals the same high ratio. There's ectopic neurons that are in this region, um, again a very high rate, um, and some other abnormalities I'll show you uh, examples of. Um, so, you know, looking at the brain tissue, here's the hippocampal formation. This is the dentate gyrus I was just talking about, and these are the different parts of the hippocampus. Uh, this is an area affected by Alzheimer's disease, but it also is an area that is a culprit in uh, many epilepsies. And it's really a highly active circuit that um, when abnormally formed or lesioned can be a source of discharges uh, that produce epilepsy. Um, and here you can see an example of sort of diagramized uh, abnormalities she's describing. This is the double dentate gyrus where you get these extra neurons up in here. You can get ectopic neurons here. Um, you can also have this plus an abnormal folding pattern of the hippocampus where this is now pointing laterally here but it's vertically here. Um, you can also get abnormalities where there's a duplication of this population of neurons called the subiculum. That's the outflow track of the hippocampus. And then you can get these really abnormally hyperconvoluted structures that, um, you know, is an, another abnormality of that uh, hippocampal formation. Um, and just a couple examples of the histology. You can see here a normal dentate gyrus. These are the neurons here. This is the normal place where all the synapses form, and there's not very many cells there. But in this one, there, there are many cells out in this normally uh, acellular area. Um, so this is kind of a duplication or bilamination of the dentate gyrus that she's describing. And here you can see these abnormally serpiginous uh, structures of the dentate gyrus, this little loop out here. You can see a duplication here of the dentate gyrus, these cells, and here again. And sometimes they, she saw this unusual pattern where there are around blood vessels. Um, and, you know, just again, uh, multiple examples of ectopic neurons, duplications, some where the cells are down in the hilus, the area called the hilus. Um, so, you know, this is just an emerging understanding of what might underlie sudden infant death syndrome. And it just goes to show that really uh, this is only now being discovered, um, even though this is a sort of a, a well-known, long-standing condition that we really, you know, haven't explained yet. Um, and we hope to see some kind of underlying thing in autism as well. And certainly it could be a pathology that looks a little bit like this, or it could be other pathologies. Um, so the genetics of autism is, is important. Uh, while it's quite, you know, considered by some to be kind of rare examples, um, it's really important because it actually provides insight into the molecular pathways that might underlie autism. And one of the early breakthroughs in 1997, so this shows you how recent our understandings of autism have emerged and really taken off since that, that date. But in 1997, uh, there was this report where they found a duplication of a chromosomal region, uh, 15Q duplication. Um, and then more recently in 2009 in a series of other papers, they've done something to look at the chromosomal areas to see if there's duplications or deletions, something called copy number variation where you could do whole genome-wide analysis at a very fine scale all the way across the genome. And they uncovered uh, you know, these areas as being the, some of the more frequent ones. And this same 15Q area popped up again 
at the very top of their list as the most frequent in two different cohorts of individuals with autism uh, and none found in the controls, and it had, had a very high uh, p-value at the time. Um, if you look at the Simons Foundation website, they've now annotated and collected all the published copy number variation data, and just recently we looked at that, and just as was found when they small, had the smaller numbers, there, there's a very large number to, of duplications of this 15Q1113 region that in, in, includes UB3A. So I just labeled it UB3A here. But you can see 270 in that collection. And interestingly, the same region gets deleted, and it's a condition called Angelman syndrome, which has a significant overlap with autism in poor language um, and uh, some other features I'll, I'll mention later. But you can see if you add that up, it's quite quite a significant proportion. Their second most common uh, condition was a deletion now, not a duplication, but a deletion of this gene called norexin-1. And you can see the same ratios uh, hold true um, in the uh, more aggregated set of copy number variations on the Safari website for norexin as well. But this one is not duplicated. It's, it's largely mostly deleted. So this genetic form has overlap just like the, the higher the risk of sudden unexpected death and epilepsy itself. Um, that's found in this genetic form of 15Q, maternal 15Q1113 triplication actually is what it is, um, where there's an extra little piece of chromosome here that's always inherited from the mother that you can see on a cytogenetic analysis where all the chromosomes are lined up here. There's a little extra piece of chromosome 15. Um, and actually, uh, it's actually duplicated. I, I would have to blow it up here, but there's an inverted duplication here, and that's from the mother. And then there's one copy from the mother and another copy from the father. So the one copy of mother is actually triplicated because there's two extra copies there. Well, that's actually in a study by uh, this laboratory who's published a number of autism studies, uh, postmortem tissue studies. They actually found a, uh, a large number of these have SUDEP. Um, occurring at the ages you can see here are very unfortunate, um, and and there's uh, some studies at, at this you know on this uh, paper that look into a little bit more of the pathology of that condition. Um, so just to touch on this genetic condition just for a moment because I think it's very illustrative of the other genetic forms, and also I think it's going to provide us insight into where uh, some of these behavioral problems arise. So this is the whole chromosome 15, and you can see this little region highlighted in red is the area that is <coughs> either deleted in Angelman syndrome or duplicated in interstitially <coughs> or even triplicated as this extra little uh, <coughs> chromosome piece that you could see here. And it's a very large region, but embedded within that region is one gene in particular of interest called UB3A. And the reason it's an interesting gene is, as I said, the, um, the duplication, interstitial duplication and triplication are always inherited from the mother, as is the deletion when it produces Angelman syndrome. And sometimes uh, a deletion from the father produces a condition called Prader-Willi syndrome. But there's this bias towards maternally inherited deletions and duplications of this region that are associated with a whole variety of uh, autism-related and um, intellectual disability uh, conditions. <clears throat> and the only gene that's really been well established to be imprinted in this area 
and to be expressed exclusively from the maternal allele is UB3A. So if you add an extra dose of, UB, of the maternal copy, you're going to express extra copies of UB3A in neurons because neurons only express the maternal copy of this gene uh, or this, yeah, this gene. So extra copies of the maternally inherited copy will actually triplicate that gene in particular, but um, only probably duplicate the other genes. So that was a sort of a, a likely culprit um, in, in producing autism. And the other reason to think that is shown here. So <laughs> um, maternally inherited deletions of UB3A specifically in that region is really underlying Angelman syndrome. It's because they found point mutations in the gene <coughs> that reconstituted the deletion syndrome, producing intellectual disability, motor defects, some seizures, very limited language, which is in part why probably this was classified in the autism spectrum disorder. But unlike some forms of autism, these individuals don't have the low sociability. In fact, they, they have poor skill at socializing because their language is so poor and also the intellectual disability means that they're not probably um, as good at socializing, but they have a very strong interest in social interaction. They smile a lot, they laugh a lot when they're around others, um, and they, they appear to have almost an increased pro-social behavior. And we reasoned that because uh, of the duplications, <coughs> maybe a loss increases your social behavior, but actually triplications <coughs> specifically of UB3A might repress the social behavior, which as I said earlier, is sort of the core characteristic feature of autism. Um, these individuals with the triplication have that, that, that trait. Uh, they, they also have some impairment of language. Uh, they have repetitive behavior. And sometimes they can have these other comorbidities. As I mentioned, the seizures and sometimes uh, SUDEP, um, they can also have, uh, and particularly males, can have some irritability and variably probably related to the presence of seizures, they, may, they can have some intellectual disability, but again, it's, it's variable from case to case. Um, so we thought that maybe UB3A might be responsible and uh, created a sort of a panel of mice. Uh, there, this already existed, the Angelman's model, but we added a panel where there's extra copies, one extra dose, of a transgene, two extra doses of a transgene, full-length gene, kind of mimicking the extra copies of the gene in these conditions. And sure enough, I'm not going to show you the data, but the mice had reduced sociability, and they have a variety of other things that overlap with the clinical findings. Um, and you know, the way people do that, I just want to touch on this because it's something else my laboratory explores, is uh, we can examine sociability in a chamber like this uh, in these mice. And I'm just going to show you a real brief uh, video where two mice were put together. And you hear these sounds or vocalizations they generate. So by measuring these physical contacts and their vocalizations, we actually can get a surrogate uh, measure of their sociability. And in the mice that have extra copies of UB3A, that's impaired. Um, in studies that we're in the middle of working up right now, um, in Angelman's mice, 
where UB3 is missing, as I speculated, they may be hypersocial. Well, we see that in the mice as well, that there's excess vocalizations, there's excess physical touching. Um, the other thing that uh, I mentioned that's kind of a major issue um, that uh, is why many families will, some, some families will seek uh, treatment is for irritability. And um, the circuits underlying that, uh, you know, at least uh, aggression in rodents has been mapped. And we want to see if the, any of these genetic autisms map to that same circuitry. So we developed this resident intruder paradigm so we can measure that in mice. And I'll just show you, this is the male who lives in the cage. That's his cage. And this is an intruder male, a little bit smaller mouse. So first he just explores the mouse a little bit, <clears throat> but then he chases him. And um, again, chasing him and chasing him. And we, we, we sort of quantify these as aggressive behaviors towards that intruder um, as kind of a measure of this um, potential comorbidity, uh, you know, in some cases of autism. Uh, <clears throat> so once you have those mouse surrogate measures of these behavioral problems, um, how can we use the genetics to really un identify the brain regions? And the brain regions are important to understand because if we want to define the pathology of this condition, we actually need to look specifically at those circuits that underlie these behavioral problems. In the case of Parkinson's disease, the dopaminergic neurons are major controllers um, and therapeutic targets for the movement disorder of Parkinson's. Um, what, what is the system for sociability? Nobody knows yet, really, um, for sure. Um, what about the aggression? There's clues, but actually not in the, any of the behavioral, you know, the genetic disorders. Um, what about the repetitive behavior? You know, all these things really need to be genetically mapped so that we can actually focus our efforts in understanding the pathology happening within those circuits specifically. So we're sort of um, modifying UB3A specifically ourselves much more now and um, not only to the circuits, but also, you know, uh, <clears throat> is it a problem at the synaptic protein complex? Is it a problem with the gene expression? Um, well, we're, we're exploring that by forcing UB3A into specific subcellular compartments like the nucleus here and see, can we reproduce the behavioral problems? If so, then it really points to a problem in gene regulation. And then it is a completely different uh, set of things that you would want to measure, specifically transcripts that come off those genes as opposed to the protein complexes that might be influenced by UB3A. Another tool we're developing, and other people are developing these tools in other genetic forms of autism, is to make, it, <clears throat> make the genes expression conditional upon this enzyme called Cree recombinase, where it um, <clears throat> is not expressed because of this stop sign here that's flanked by these target sequences of Cree. And what it does is it, that Cree clips out that piece and allows expression to occur in one of these neurons. Well, you can, you can, there's an existing large panel of made-to-order mice that have Cree recombinase expressed in the inhibitory neurons of the brain. Others are the excitatory neurons of the brain. Others, uh, the dopamine cells, the serotonergic neurons, uh, all these neurotransmitter systems and so we can actually target the genetic problem to those specific cell types and we can actually go on further to do stereotactic injections so we can <coughs> uh, 
introduce extra copies to a specific part of the brain to really not just say cell type but also brain region. <coughs> so these are all things that we're doing in our laboratory but are also being done elsewhere. And you know, you can look at the synaptic defects and, and a whole variety of things using really wonderful new technologies that are available uh, to genetically engineer the mouse brain and study uh, brain function. So just to close on the autism genetics, um, I just wanted to give you an overview on how that's evolved. So in 1997, I showed you that earliest genetic form that was described. And then I mentioned the copy number variations, which was 2009. Well, there had been a little bit of an effort just saying, okay, you know what, I, I guess it might be a synaptic kind of gene. Let me just uh, take a candidate gene approach and look in kids with autism for mutations. And they did find a few that turned out to be quite rare, neuroligin 3 and 4, but that was one of the earliest breakthroughs in genetics. Um, subsequent to that, they developed this copy number variation across the genome, and they found uh, Shank 3, for example, and a variety of other proteins or, you know, genetic regions I, I described for you. Um, another group, uh, the Chris Walsh lab, I'll, I'll mention a little later, it, uh, looked at consanguineous genetics where the uh, recessive uh, genes can pop up. And then now, really, uh, the whole genetics effort was, has taken off because of next-gen sequencing, meaning it's so inexpensive now to sequence the whole exome of a, of a patient or even now the whole genome, which means all the sequence. Um, and they're beginning to uncover uh, many, many genetic causes. What's interesting is if you, as I mentioned, there's an overlap. Autism can have epilepsy sometimes and autism can have intellectual disability sometimes. Well, if you look at the genes that are mutated in these case series of autism, they actually overlap with independently discovered genetic causes of early infantile epileptic encephalopathy in this set here, and um, mental retardation uh, described here. So, um, you know, here again, it's unfortunately making things a bit more complex, and it shows that actually each case may need to be looked at somewhat individually um, for these rare genetic forms because you know once you find out you have a CDKL5 mutation you know there's a whole family and a, a, a foundation devoted to understanding and supporting families with this condition the same is true for um, Dravet's syndrome SCN1A um, and it's, it's really a growing phenomena with the internet connectivity of people across the world to sort of work together and try to make progress in understanding the specific uh, genetic condition that um, their family member has. So what, what is the promise of the uh, circuit uh, uh, genetic investigation of circuits? Well, you know, we can find the circuits underlying sociability problems the ones underlying repetitive restrictive interests, uh, the irritability, intellectual disability may come up eventually, uh, seizures and even the risk of um, death from seizures. And certainly um, these will become the tr targets of drug therapy development. Um, there may in the future be gene therapy aimed at the brain. Uh, there's not much of that happening yet, but I could see that in the future where you reintroduce a gene into a specific brain region to improve some of these symptoms. And then there's this chemogenetic approach where turn on and off system. Uh, so I think, I think that that will um, be the future. So I just have a few more things to say and then we'll be done. 
Um, I'm going to skip a few things here. Um, so the genetics of autism is certainly making tremendous progress. And this is a nice paper that's reviewed, a Nature Medicine, summarizing the, uh, you know, the more frequent uh, genetic mutations, the copy number variations, and some of the syndromic disorders. But if you add all that up and look at all the cases, it actually only accounts for a small fraction you can see here. Um, so really, that to me argues why we really need to look at the pathology of autism. What do we know about the pathology of autism? Well, um, there was this important paper in 2005 by the Pardo group at Johns Hopkins where they found elevated cytokines, chemokines, and growth factors, interleukin-6, for example, here in the anterior cingulate cortex, as well as many of these other chemicals. Um, and actually consistent with that finding, they also found in the cerebral spinal fluid a potential marker for the condition um, if at some point we get around to using this as a tool for diagnostics, which is actually very common to sample CSF for multiple sclerosis and various other conditions, um, inter interferon gamma is incredibly elevated in the CSF. Um, and again, I think that these are maybe uncovering markers for, for diagnostics. Um, consistent with those findings of, of uh, inflammation, an important paper in 2011 by the Geshwin group showed that there is an elevation of a large number of transcripts. So this is the gene expression profile of the brain of the postmortem tissue where they found immune response genes were, were, were dramatically elevated in autism compared to controls. Of course, not every single case showed that, so that may explain the heterogeneity. And reciprocally, there's a repression of a variety of neuronal genes. And then finally, a newer group uh, found that uh, further classifying the transcripts that they independently uh, characterize that there's an activation of type 1 and type 2 microglial markers. Um, again, this interferon pathway I showed you that's high in the CSF showed up again in the transcriptional response downstream of interferon gamma. Um, so just to sum up right now, um, the neuropathology of autism is uh, in the works. Um, I think that there's uh, likely over the next four years, five years, largely because of this brain banking effort, is going to grow into a, a real known uh, condition, and hopefully those will, be, will inspire us with uh, new therapeutic targets for the condition. Um, and I think that's all I had to share today. So um, I guess we can open it up for questions now. Okay, thank you, Dr. Anderson. That was terrific. So we have, there were a couple of questions submitted, and Carolyn, the clinical director of Autism BrainNet, is on the line, so she'll be, she'll be moderating those and, and sharing them verbally. Okay. Hi, everyone. This is Carolyn Hare, and uh, Dr. Anderson, that was an excellent presentation. Thank you so much, um, and just thanks to you and the Autism Science Foundation for hosting this webinar for us. Um, Dr. Anderson, we have a couple of questions uh, that have come up, and one parent is interested in learning your perspective of the potential for labs to take on um, a studying gene therapy to reduce the challenges associated um, with uh, DUPE 15. And I wonder if you've had any experience with that um, or would like to share your perspective. Sure. So um, I do think that it should be something 
to be considered. Um, I think that one of the first steps is to figure out uh, where the symptoms that produce the you know a rise in the in the brain and and we're sort of in the middle of that right now ourselves and I'm sure other laboratories are as well and the importance of figuring out which specific circuits are 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 broken uh, to produce the behavioral problems is because uh, you know really what I would imagine in gene therapy is that it would have to be a very precise um, injection of the a virus you know like adeno-associated virus for example into that brain region and ideally just be expressed in that one cell type so that you know there's no off-target effects um, and I think that that is coming uh, and in fact we're very enthusiastic about um, trying to move in that direction next. I, I have a colleague of mine who is a stereotactic neurosurgeon um, so we talk about this all the time uh, and certainly my colleague in neurology, Cliff Saper is doing this kind of a stereotaxic uh, chemogenetic therapy aimed at uh, Parkinson's. He has a program aimed at that. So I do think that you know, for genetically defined conditions, a uh, for UB3A excess UB3A, for example, a, there are ways to knock down UB3A with shRNAs, for example, um, and I, I do think that that is. Uh, a potentially viable therapeutic approach in the future. Mm, thanks very much, Dr. Anderson. Um, the next question uh, is, the next uh, person, parent actually, is wondering whether the size of the duplication uh, matters in terms of, I'm imagining, behavioral implications and, and medical implications as well. So, um, Certainly, you know, these duplications and deletions can contain many genes and um, a simple interpretation is that there's one really important gene that's very dose sensitive like UB3A, you know, we're finding is incredibly dose sensitive. The neuron has chosen to only express one copy intentionally by silencing the paternal copy. So it really cares how, what, it's, what its dose of UB3A is. Um, and uh, and so we, we were lucky in that case that that actually explained a lot of the symptoms, at least, you know, in the mouse. Um, but there could be other modifiers, certainly. And in fact, 15Q1113, you know, around that region, there's more and more CNVs that are smaller that flank that area. So I, I'm sure that there are other potential modifiers that are within many of these CNVs. Uh, but I think that there's probably, at least my personal view, is that there could be a major contributor just because I'm not sure that all genes have this, have an equal propensity for dose, having such a dose sensitivity in, in affecting uh, the way neurons work. Well, that's, that's really helpful to understand. Thank you. Um, and our last question that we have is, this participant is wondering about the prognosis for those with interstitial uh, duplications, whether they can eventually catch up and, and experience a more typical development. Um, it's, I, I have to say it's a little bit outside my expertise, um, but I can... Uh, <coughs> You know, at least in, in, in the limited work that we're doing in this area, um, 
it you know in those conditions it's still a little bit unclear why some of them have symptoms and some of them actually don't. It, it, there's probably some carriers that are really not affected at all. And, <laughs> uh, you know, I think that the fact that there are carriers that are unaffected does make one think that um, there, you know, there could be compensation. I don't know the exact natural history of that genetic condition myself um, and how mm -hmm. often they have symptoms and it naturally sort of regresses over time. But you see that in other gene genetic conditions. Um, there could be other genetic modifiers, and I think in the future, when people do whole genome, whole exome sequencing in the context of a CNV, like an interstitial duplication for 15Q, um, they will find modifiers, uh, like additional genetic uh, alterations. And in our, in our efforts in SUDEP, Sudden Unexpected Death in Epilepsy, we're sequencing uh, the genome of these uh, individuals' brain, tissue, and what we're finding is that there are often multiple genetic changes. Um, in d different locations. And it could be that if there is if, uh, interstitial duplication, that that could be interacting with another genetic change elsewhere. Um, but that's actually speculation. It's, this is, it hasn't been shown yet. Uh, um, but, I do, but I do think that the variable penetrance of the interstitial duplication does give one hope that there could be uh, compensation over time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Excellent. And that was the last of our questions. Thanks very much, Dr. Anderson. Sure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Carolyn. So I am going to once again show the, let's see, show Dr. Alicia Halliday's uh, email address again in case anyone comes up with a question later on that you'd like to that you'd like to ask, you can email it to her. Her email address is on the bottom of the screen, um, and she will get back to you. And like we said earlier, the recording of this will be sent out to everyone who has who registered um, or participated. And we thank you all very much. Thank you to Carolyn for moderating questions and Dr. Anderson for a terrific presentation. Thank you. Thanks so. all. Thank you very much. Have a great day to everyone. You too. Bye. Bye.